The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner, or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs, and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Welcome to No Neutrality, a podcast of Reconstructionist Radio. I will be giving, and my name is Joseph Foreman, I will be giving a podcast at least once a week covering some aspect of the tremendous privilege to be rooted and grounded in the love of God and how he overwhelms you, his beloved, with more than you could ask or imagine. Your eye has not seen, nor has your ear heard, what his plan for you is. We will begin our first official podcast by examining a most unusual evidence of your standing in the estimation of God's law. Do you believe that a Mosaic law order a Mosaic government, a, a biblical theocracy, would be a people ruled by a government that enforced the law of Moses. Well, you might say that's as obvious as who's buried in Grant's tomb. Fact is, the vast majority of people today, Christians and non-Christians, do believe <clears throat> this, which is why for many reasons they oppose a theocracy today. But there's another group of Christians called theonomists, who you all are the ones I'm probably speaking to, who do believe that this would be a good thing. They look forward to the day when the power of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the word and the discipleship of God's people, see the nations converted as the scriptures promised, and the kings bring tribute to Jesus Christ. As Revelation 11.15 says, The kingdoms of the world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. They that is a theonomist, and I, believe that this will happen in space-time history because it will be the victory of Christ in history begun in the garden and continuing through today and on to that glorious historical fulfillment of the rule of Christ in history. Satan will not thwart God's plans. Satan will not reduce God to frustration so that all God can do is rescue a few of his believers and then blow the world up behind him like some cheap B-rated movie. Now, for theonomists, this means that the governments of this world to be converted or biblical, as as Revelation 11.15 says, uh, to be biblical or converted, they must use their political apparatus to find, prosecute, and execute all who oppose God according to the details of Mosaic law. Or, as one person told me, not necessarily execute them, but drive them underground away from the public sight. And so God's righteousness shall be upheld. So it seems on this one point that everyone agrees. Whether they approve of it or not, the theonomist approves of it, and the non-theonomist doesn't, obviously. <clears throat> they agree, though, that a Mosaic theocracy would be the state using its political, police, judicial, perhaps even military apparatus and justice system to enforce God's law. 
they see more or less the law of God in this this state strong enough to enforce it is sort of going together hand in hand. The question is, does Moses agree with everybody? Because everybody does seem to agree on that point. Would it surprise you to discover that Mosaic law does not prescribe a particular form of government in order to be theonomic or mosaic? This is the first part of this study that surprised me. And wait till you hear the conclusion. I could find no statute setting up a monarchy, a patriarchy, a representative democracy, certainly they didn't come along for a while, or tribal warlords, or an aristocracy of some sort. Versions of these forms of governing were all floating around in the ancient world of Israel, and Israel experienced in its history several of them. Well, not the representative democracy, of course. <clears throat> but God did not specify which structure they were to follow if they were to be consistent with his law. The law doesn't doesn't seem to address that, doesn't seem to address that. And by the time Christ came, God had shown throughout the pages of Scripture, thus far written, that is the Old Testament, that he could work with almost any form of government. So it's worth asking if there is a form of government that the law of Moses was designed for more than the other forms of government. You know, for instance, a dictatorship, for instance, or... Anyway, or is God equally comfortable, or perhaps even equally uncomfortable, with any form of government just so it executes his law, his statutes, his sanctions, and everything, not leaving anything out, not turning to the right hand or to the left? And we do look forward to a time when government will use its power to force all men, and they look forward to a time when government will use its power to force all men to serve the living God according to the dictates of biblical law. And then they do believe we shall all be free. Since there is no direct statement, let's see if we can approach this question in Moses by ruling aspects of government out or ruling them in as legitimate form structures for a government to employ to fit best with the application of God's law to the world. We will look at four functions that today are said to be the unique province of government. In other words, we will look at four things we must organize a body of leaders called government, and we must empower that government to force all citizens to obey these things and to do these four things because only government can do them. These are things only government can do, and it must, and it must do both to exist and to justify its existence. We will see what Moses had to say about them, but let's take a look at them first. They are defense, justice, taxation, and welfare. Defense, it is commonly believed that the purpose of government is to defend its people from invasion by another nation. That is its primary purpose of government. Therefore, a government may force its people to defend the country by forming an army with them and leading them into battle. Another thing that government is justified is, or is absolutely necessary because it can't be done any other way is justice. It is commonly believed that the purpose of government is to defend the people from crime and to punish evildoers who harm the innocent. So government includes courts of law empowered to prove the guilty, to, to prove the guilt or innocence, and then to force the judgments of the judge onto the guilty and a whole policing apparatus is created to be sure that the judgments of the judge are carried out. 
police departments and sheriffs, FBI, Highway Patrol, the Army, ordained as our presidents and governors and mayors and police chiefs to execute the law of the land and to carry out the decisions and verdicts of the judges as is appropriate to protect the people. The third thing is taxation. It is commonly accepted that because the government needs to exist, because it mu only it can defend us and only it can enforce justice, then it must be funded. So a critically important power of government is to find itself, is to fund itself by taking money from the people, whether they want to give it to the government or not, or whether or not the, the government is doing a good job of what it is supposed to be doing. And finally, there is welfare to provide relief and a safety net for the poor and the infirm so that no one needs to be homeless, no one needs to starve or lack medical attention. And in addition to that, many believe that it is the government's task to build infrastructure such as roads, bridges, waterworks, and so forth. What Moses says and does not say is not going to fit your preconceived ideas at this point. So stop a minute, and please really listen, not to me, but to Moses. You can reject what I'm about to say, but I want you to hear what Moses has said, and if you reject it, let it be what I've said. Please understand what it is you're rejecting, because the conclusion is, is very surprising when you actually look at what the law of Moses says without bringing to it your prejudices. Let's start with what we all agree on from almost all perspectives, though. And you'll find that we agree on quite a bit. Everyone knows and agrees that the law of Moses provides both concrete statutory laws, such as specific laws about sheep stealing, blasphemy and false religion, murder and sexual assault and perversion. But just as important, along with these statutes and ordinances, come the penalties, which are to be executed against the guilty. Now, it is these penalties that cause so much disagreement. I will say that. But we all agree that the laws and the penalties are there and they go together. Now, everyone knows and agrees that Moses set up an ascending system of courts, and when the matter was too hard, it was passed up, and the final court of, of judgment would come from the high priest and the judges, in the place I caused my name to dwell. That is the final authority. Everyone knows and agrees that the law of God provides a most rigorous legal process in order to prove guilt so as to be sure that we do not falsely accuse and punish the innocent. It is these protections that where the, that, that where the U.S. law, the United States law, has been able to imitate them, particularly in the Bill of Rights and of the Constitution, and many of our due process laws, that we have therefore lived a very blessed existence thanks to this insight from God's law. Now, everyone knows and agrees that the Law of Moses is also an exposition of very particular philosophical theological ideas distilled into two commands, love God and love your neighbor. And the fulfillment of the law is that love. However, these are popularly upheld in the imagination of our postmodern millennial culture, as well as today's church, where it's important to note that both culture and church blithely divorce them from any other biblical context. Just love God and love your neighbor, and it's kind of all they have to say. And finally, everyone knows and agrees that these two general commands result in a summary of the particulars of the law, called the Ten Commandments, which cover every aspect of human social organization, and I'll be talking more about that in a future episode. And of course, from these ten 
Moses expounds on the specific statutes that apply to them. Look, I am really sorry I've just put everybody to sleep on this one. Please hang in there with me. And I'll tell you why. Because there's so much that we agree on. Okay, that, that's if you just go through and look at it, it, what I covered there, almost every side of every question would agree on the things that I just said. I mean, whether you're for the law, against the law, an atheist, or whatever. These are things that are self-evident. They're not self-evident. They're obvious to anybody who has any acquaintance with the text. So it's worth noting, and this is the point I want you to hear clearly, there is no legal provision for a particular form of government. There is no statement endorsing, for instance, a, a royal monarchy. There is no statute setting up, for instance, an aristocracy or rule through regal bloodlines. There's no establishment of a representative democracy. That wasn't going to come for about 3,000 more years. Or a republic, in spite of the fact that people are given an opportunity to select their judges. And it's certainly a covenantal government that we're talking about. But this is a far cry from representative form of government, such as the one our Constitution or the parliaments of Europe have cobbled together. The closest to a form of government that Moses explicitly establishes is a judicial system. And this also is common knowledge. While reference is made to the possibility of a king, and Moses describes the limits of kingship, it's safe to say that no ruler before or since, much less a king, has ever attempted to limit his authority and power by following what God said in Deuteronomy 17:14 through 20 about the sort of king that would be pleasing to him. And also, when Israel got around to establishing a king, God was not pleased and took it very personally. So if God ordained kingship, there has yet to be a king, including David, by the way, who ruled according to what is found in the law of Moses. Did Jesus believe that we should establish such a king? There is an extensive ink there is extensive ink given to setting up an intricate government in the law of Moses. There's extensive ink given to setting up an intricate government over the holy things of Israel surrounding the presence of God. So there's no doubt that the omission of a similar setup for the matters of state is not an oversight or an assumption of some sort of common knowledge. You can't see my air quotes there. God and Moses both are intimately aware of matters of state and governmental organization and empowerment. Remember, Moses was a prince in Egypt. This was his whole upbringing. Government was his upbringing, civil government and religious government both. So to leave it out is not just happen to slip God's mind. Okay, now listen. Would it surprise you to discover that there are no provisions in Mosaic law or the rest of Scripture that authorize or empower the governor or the judge to force the people to obey him? Mind you, there are examples of that sort of stuff going on all through the Bible. But there is no statute, there's no statutory provision made in the law of Moses or anywhere else for those sorts of powers to be exercised by judge or king or ruling apparatus, whatever the government may consist of. There is no parallel to what in our law courts would be called contempt of court, which is refusing to carry out a judge's order that is then punishable. Excuse me, a contempt of court, a refusal to carry out a judge's order that is then punished by the state, by the government. 
Okay, and that's the crux of it. There is no statute in the law of Moses empowering the king to force his people to obey him. There is no provision, for instance, for police and for sheriffs. To be clear, let me explain what I mean. The law says that the murderer, the adulterer, the homosexual, <clears throat> the blasphemer should be executed, usually by stoning, perhaps by burning. The law says the thief must make restitution as to the one he stole from, and sometimes fourfold, sevenfold, all sorts of things like that. Now, someone's accused of these things, and there's a trial for one of these offenses takes place, and the judge finds a person guilty and pronounces the penalty, whatever that penalty might be. Now listen, there's no government apparatus established by Moses empowering the judge or the king or the government to carry out the judgment. I know you're sitting there shouting what you think it might be, but just keep listening to what Moses actually says and doesn't say. If the judgment is to be carried out or enforced, it is the people who must do it. By the way, this is a fascinating parallel to Matthew 18, 15 through 17. You know, if you have an audit against the brother, you t take it to a witness, then you take to who? It's where Jesus bypasses the apostles and the elders who are standing right there with him when it comes to judgment. And it goes straight to the congregation for the final judgment of a dispute, just like Paul did with the Corinthians, both in the matter of the sexual sin of a member of, the, of their congregation and in the matter of members suing each other as in court. Like Moses, he looked at the congregation, can't the least of you solve this problem? In our government, we would call the one in the government whose job it is to carry out the judgment of the law, the executive. That's what we think of the king. The king is the executive. And so surely he must be the executive of Mosaic law, except he's given no executive power. The one who executes the law and the judgments throughout the law of Moses is not the governor, the police chief, the mayor. And every level of government, of Gentile government, has one of those. Moses provided for no such governmental figure to set up a political apparatus that would carry out the judgments either for the judge and certainly not for the king, for whom there is no statutory foundation for creating such an office at all. It's as if God says, oh, if you must have a king, do it this way. And when Israel actually asked for one, God said it was an act of personal rejection of the living God by the people. But okay, whatever, give him a king anyway. But, but warn him, this is what the king's going to do to you. In other words, the king is given to the people for judgment, not for their blessing. And you'll see why in just a minute. Because the king, if he becomes an executive, is a usurper. At the beginning, I listed four typical tasks that today many believe are the proper responsibility for government. And I'm going to start with the fourth. I'm going to work my way through them. Okay, now they give you an idea of the field here. We're going to work through each of these tasks of government, which political theorists today, and, and many, many Christians and many, many theonomists, believe these are things government's responsible to do. And I'll start with the fourth, and we're going to work back through them. Welfare. It is believed by many, including Christians, that one of the legitimate tasks of government is to provide food, housing, and medical attention for those who are unable or unwilling to provide for themselves and to engage in public works on behalf of the people, like education, roads, waterworks, and so forth. 
there is certainly, you know, all those things Jesus covered under they love to be called benefactor. It's popularly believed today that Jesus really didn't know what he was talking about. And these are the legitimate tasks of government. So let's take a look at them. First of all, there is certainly no provision in Mosaic law for the government, for the kings or judges, to provide these things for the people, either infrastructure or uh, works of mercy on behalf of the poor and the destitute. These are things that are in the jurisdiction of the people to organize and execute themselves voluntarily. In fact, there are even laws telling a number of ways to do it. Yes, we know that the kings did public works like Solomon, but there is no command for the government itself to do them, just as we know the kings did many things for which there is no command for the for the king to do, and yet they seem to think it needed to be done. You know, sort of like reaching out and grabbing the ark or the covenant as it wobbles on the on the cart. And when Rehoboam, for instance, succeeded Solomon, there's an indication that Solomon had gone too far and there's a terrible price to pay when the government is forced, has forced the people to slave in a work that God had not authorized in his law for government to be doing, and the kingdom was divided. But wait, there is provision, you're telling me now, for, poor, for the poor in the law. There are commands not to harvest the corners of the field, for instance, to leave those for the poor to glean. There are commands for a large portion of the tithe to go to the poor in Deuteronomy 12 and 14. But, there's no command for the judge or the king to either judge for the poor against the rich or to provide for the poor anything except a just decision, whether the poor benefits from it or not. The judgment belongs to the Lord. That is to say, the judge must follow God's law and not pay attention to who it is who is on trial one way or the other. You can see... Uh, Leviticus 19, 15 through 18, verses 15 through 18, or Deuteronomy 16, 19. And there are many more. Those are just two that will get you started on that. Now, if this is true, and it is, you can read Torah for yourself and see I'm not making it up. Then why do the prophets make such a big stink about establishing justice and rendering judgment and God's judging the people, not just the rulers, for innocent blood and inequity? When you lift up your hands to pray, Isaiah's talking to all of them there in his first chapter. I don't hear your prayers because there's innocent blood on your hands. <clears throat> so for this innocent blood, he's blaming the people all across. How could they find the land guilty if it is not the king's job, the government's job to feed the poor, clothe the naked and provide for the stranger? Okay. In other words, they're finding him guilty of all this. Now, you don't need me to tell you the answer. It's it's obvious. These things are statutes God gave to the people to care for the needy around them, personally, not impersonally, abandoning them to government systems that force everyone to give money. No, they're to be free will gifts, and God will judge the heart of his people based on their success in caring for the poor, not on their success in hiring professionals and then getting a government to steal the money from everybody to do it. But the bottom line, whether you like my rhetoric or not, is there's nothing in the law of Moses for it. The commands to care for the poor and the needy in the law of Moses are not commands that God tells the government to either carry out itself or enforce that the people will not carry them out. Even though God promises to judge the land and, according to the prophets, was about to judge the land. But it goes further than this. The guilt of the people goes, and the responsibility of the people goes further than this. And you're going to see in a minute. 
The prophets are thundering against the personal sins of the people who have personally shut out the poor and the needy in the land. The rulers are rebuked not because they fail to provide welfare, but rather they fail to judge justly when there is a case of law before them between the poor and the rich. Their false judgments on behalf of the wealthy enforce the oppression of the poor and pervert the law of God. But what's more, it's the people of the land who go along with the government's miscarriage of justice that makes them equally guilty. You see, they are the ones God empowered, that God ordained, that God set apart to execute the judgments of the king and the judges in the land, if they were righteous judgments, and furthermore, to resist them if they were unrighteous judgments. So the entire land is guilty if a ruler judges and decrees wickedness by judgment or decree, because the only apparatus God established to carry out and execute the judgment of the kings or the judge are the people. So it is the people who are responsible in the last word for the wickedness of the kings and judges. Now, it's easy for you to see in this situation, that is in the situation of, of welfare, that there are no provisions either for the government to physically care for the poor apart from justice, nor are they empowered to authorize to enforce things like gleaning of the tithing of law if the people fail to do it. It's easy to see that, that a welfare system is, is totally against Mosaic Code. There's no legal apparatus in government, and there is no law requiring it of the king or the judge. So when a government does try to do things the law of God does not provide for it to do, it brings catastrophe to all, the rich and the poor alike, even seemingly good deeds such as helping the needy or great public works in the long run when they are done by people God did not ordain and did not empower. They turn into judgments against all of us. So if you can see that God's intentions, excuse me, if you can see that good intentions do not accomplish God's will, you will easily see the next three points are identical to this one on poverty. Let's turn and look at the defense of the land. This is perhaps the most common reason for justifying the power of civil government. To force people to serve its will is all <clears throat> to protect all we love and cherish and hold dear. Deuteronomy 20, 1-8 clearly states that when an enemy threatens the land, that the people shall gather, and they shall listen to a stirring speech from the priest to trust God, regardless of the enemy. And then the captains will send home all who have just built a house, just planted a vineyard or an orchard, and or have just been married. They're to go home and, and, and enjoy these things, not to risk their life. But, and wait for it, they shall also send home those who are fearful and faint-hearted. In other words, anyone can walk out. This is actually what was happening to Saul when he was waiting for Samuel to come and do the sacrifice. His army was deserting in droves, just like Moses said they could. And his trying to stop them by doing the sacrifice is precisely what lost him the kingdom. So in this centrally important reason for having a civil government, Empowered to require obedience of the people, we must have someone to protect the land, we are told. Moses provided no recourse for whatever form of government happened to be in charge if the people did not want to go to war. No one has to go to war even to protect their own loved ones if they did not believe the cause was just and their heart was therefore faint for a battle which they did not believe was the Lord's. God leaves them to be the final judge of whether a war is to be fought or not. Not the king. 
Now, mind you, God will judge them if they're wrong. God will bless them if they're right. But the bottom line is, it's their final judgment. It's not the king's. In fact, one of the most famous battles in Israel's history was the one in which God sends home thousands because he wanted the victory with only 300. Listen, if the king is convinced that that battle is the Lord's, then let the stinking king go out and fight it. Stick a gun in Trump's hands or, or Obama's hands or anybody's hands up there, any, you know, all the president's hands, and let them go fight the war if they believe in it so strong. The point is, the ruler, though, has no power to force people to carry out the one thing which modern commentators will say is the central purpose of government, defense. How much less does Mosaic power give, excuse me, does Mosaic law empower the king to tax people against their will for their defense? Okay, let's look at justice. I've already covered most of that was the first half of everything I've been talking about. So I'll just touch on a few things here. Um, In a word, for all the verses in which God tells the people they had better do everything the judge says to do, that is, to stone the offender, or to see to it that he pays back what he owes to the one injured, or to provide for the widow and the orphan, or whatever, God never once gives the judge or the king the power to punish the people for not carrying out the ruler or the judge's decree or judgment. Not once. And even though the people's continuation in the land is at stake, the land would vomit them out, and God promises that. But the government, the king, or the judge is not empowered to keep that vomiting out from happening by forcing the people to obey. Their power, the power of the leaders, is the lead, even though no one follows, to judge, even though no one upholds your judgments, to prophesy, though all mock you. Enforcement isn't given to them. None of them are empowered to punish the people for not following their judgments. Oh, they are empowered to declare the death penalty. They are empowered, perhaps, to declare excommunication. They're empowered to declare any number of things. But they're not empowered to execute their judgments. See, this is precisely what Deuteronomy 17, 9-13 says in no uncertain terms. Read it. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you, they being the judges. They are to, to bring the case that's too hard for all the judges. They, they bring the case to where the Lord causes his name to dwell. And he says, when you're there and they've given you a judgment, you shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they order you. Now, in this passage, God delivers his law to the people, notice, not the government. He doesn't say, and the king shall do according to this sentence, which which the, the king pronounces upon you in that place where the Lord chooses. And the king shall be careful to do all according to those things that he has ordered you to do. No, it doesn't say that at all. In the same way that the law itself is delivered from Mount Sinai, I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not have an idol. You shall not uh, fail to rest on the Sabbath. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall uh, not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. This is all you. This is God. He doesn't say anything about a government in there. Doesn't say anything about the king. Nothing about the high priest. Nothing about enforcing this stuff. 
In this passage, God delivers his law to the people, not to the government, as he's talking about the enforcement of the law. They may come to the government, such as it is, for judgment, but once they get the judgment, from start to finish, it is, you shall do this, and you shall do that. It is the people who are to carry out the decision of the judge. And the man, now back to quoting, and the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. Okay? The death penalty is issued. But how is he to die? By the agency of the judge? The agency of the king? The royal executioner? The police? The sheriff? The army? None of these. Listen to the quote again. So you shall put away evil, the evil from Israel. In case you missed it, God concludes by directly addressing those people who are to execute the judgments of his law. And all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. It is in the end the people who must decide if the judgment is just according to God's law and to carry it out or if it is unjust, or if it is wicked. They must either ignore it or oppose it. Incidentally, as the priest did against Athaliah, as the uh, uh, eunuchs did against Jezebel. Now God makes it very clear. He's going to punish or bless them based on the decision they make. But what is crystal clear is, it is you who are the executive of this governmental system. You have judges, you have priests, you might even have a king in there. God says, okay, you can have a king if you need one. But you, the people, are the ones who will make the final decision based on God's law, of course. This is not an arbitrary decision any more than the judge's decision is to be arbitrary. God makes this very clear through his later prophets and in Moses that the people are are responsible for the injustice of the land as much as the kings and the judges. They have permitted their office of executioners of the judgments of God to be taken over by corrupt governors and governments who have exceeded their mandates under Mosaic law. It is the people who are the executives of Mosaic law. Bojadar, I'm sorry, you're just wrong on that point. There is an executive in Mosaic law. It's God's people. And there is an executive branch of Mosaic government. It's not the king or the judge, or the priest, it is the people to whom God addresses his law personally, and to the people whom he empowers to act, to establish justice by hold, upholding just judgments, and by resisting wicked decrees, and, wicked decrees and wicked judgments. Okay, this leaves only taxation. I'll be real brief on that. There are no taxes spoken of to support any governmental function that today we think of needs supporting. Remember those four things? Defense, justice, um, uh, welfare, perhaps. But even if you can find a tax, there is no penalty the king or the government or judge is authorized by Moses to execute against you if you fail or refuse to pay the tax. The tax, such as it is, is voluntary. Now, God may judge you for failing to pay it, just as God will judge you if you fail to execute the righteous judgments of the judge. But also you got to remember, God's going to judge you if you execute unrighteous judgments of the judge. You can't say, hey, Deuteronomy 17 says, I've got to do everything he says. God said, I never authorize you to disobey me just because a judge did. 
Of these four modern functions of government, none of them can be found in the law of Moses to be legitimately enforceable if the people will not enforce that aspect of government, if they will not volunteer to fight for that government, if they will not eagerly pay taxes for that government to do whatever it does. Now, does it surprise you that to the extent there is a directive for government organization in the law of Moses, and it is scanty, but whatever government apparatus we might deduce from it that might exist, as far as God through Moses is concerned, obedience to that government is to be entirely voluntary, and then God will judge whether what you volunteered for or didn't volunteer was for correct. And he will judge his people based on the righteousness of their support or opposition to their leaders. It is God who decides if the government is to be obeyed or disobeyed on any given issue. The government has no legitimate power to enforce its own word. If the people do not find it in their conscience or heart to enforce it, then the government has no power to change that decree. By the way, in Matthew 18 parallels that. The final court of appeal is the congregation... And then judgment is carried out even in groups of two and three. Does it surprise you that in the law of Moses, the individual is the final judge over whatever any civil or judicial government official or judge might rule? Does it surprise you to discover that neither democracy nor dictatorship or representative government is prescribed in Mosaic law? I'm not saying God's against it or for it. I'm just saying it's, it's not in the law of Moses. You see, the specific details of governing organizations are not established by God's law. Only the powers any government might have to conduct its business are specified by God's law, or not specified as the case may be. Does it surprise you that what is prescribed by the law is the freedom of the people to overrule their rulers if their conscience requires it, if God's law requires it, and it gives the rulers no recourse to strike back against the people's conscience. The ruler can only invoke the judgment of God, which is no small thing. When you think about excommunication, Paul didn't give authority to the elders to excommunicate those drunks. Paul told the drunks that God may well excommunicate them, because that's why some of you are sick and some of you have died. God executed the death penalty on some of the people for their unrighteous taking of the Lord's table. It's not, it's not the judge's It's not the elders. It's not the king's job. They can only invoke the judgment of God and then see what God does. Step back. See if the lightning strikes. You see, we feel so advanced and so empowered here in America because we can vote for our government. Yes, but once we elect it, we are the servants of those governors. Yet Moses, oh, we say, well, we can can sit on a jury and, and judge cases. Well, Moses spoke of a law code that would only fit with a system of government in which the people did not have to obey the government at all when it framed wickedness by decree or when the government judged unjustly. Indeed, they would be found guilty with that government and judged and vomited out of the land with that government if they ignored a righteous judgment or if they enforced an unrighteous judgment. Either way. But wait. How can a government govern if they can't force people to do what the governors and judges tell them to do? That's just simple common sense, isn't it? Jesus didn't think so, but but okay, we'll call it simple common sense. And this is the biggest irony of this study. Seriously, check it out. Literally everywhere a commentator or a theologian or a political philosopher or scientist or you 
has found a directive for top-down enforcement in the law of Moses, or the various judges or governors or whatever you think are there, it is always inserted into the text with this line of reasoning. Quote, there must be the power to force the people to obey, because it would be absurd and impossible for there to be a government that did not have the power to force its people to obey. Therefore, Moses assumed such power, though he never wrote them down. He just knew that we all knew that this is the way it has to work, so he never wrote it down. Now that is worth repeating. These words, Moses assumed such powers but never wrote them down because everyone knows the government must have the power to enforce its will or it can't govern. These words are nowhere found in Scripture. These words are the words of true Pharisees who cannot abide by God's law as it is written and must modify it by, quote, what we all know to be true, namely the traditions of men particularly the tradition of government needing to have power to force people to obey it. Even though Jesus said the exact opposite of that, and even though throughout the entire Mosaic Code we find that that just isn't what Moses said, and being a prince of Egypt, he certainly understood government, and also being the scribe and prophet of God, he certainly was, was representing a, the deity who understands this stuff, and they just accidentally left it out? Where did these traditions of men come from? They are best described by the words of our Lord. And he said to them, Truly you have put aside the law of God, so that you may keep the rules which have been handed down to you. So to return to the issues which began our study, the law of Moses can certainly be applied by any government, but its very structure is a monument to self-government, and that is where it finds its true home to the heart transformed by the Holy Spirit with his law written on it. The Ten Commandments are given to the people personally by God, personally, not to governments to enforce upon the people, though governments can and do. Yes, there is the possibility of joining together to deal with issues which the Gentiles refer to as civil government or state issues, and that's how God wants them dealt with apparently in Moses. And yes, Jesus did reject the authoritarian use of force which characterizes Gentile government. Interestingly enough, it wasn't just Jesus. So did Moses. While Moses insists that God's law be carried out, and while God insists that judges and governors pass judgment, and while God threatens to judge the people if they will not carry out the just judgments of their rulers, and God promises to punish the people if they will not carry out the unjust judgments of the rulers, his law leaves it up to the people to determine if the judge or the king is giving just judgment or framing wickedness by decree. God himself, in the law of Moses, is the only judge to judge and punish the people if they judge wrongly to regard or disregard a ruler of their people. Who to thunk? Who to thunk Moses, of all people, did not set up a dictatorship to kill everyone he disagreed with? Not even we theonomists have paid sufficient attention to what the law of God, which we have committed ourselves to uphold, incidentally, as did the Pharisees of Matthew 23, and yet how easily we miss what the law says right there in front of them. You shall do this. You shall do this. Who's the executive? Who shall do it? Not talking to the king. Just quoting Deuteronomy 17 there. 
But that's not all. When we look at Jesus telling us to lead through being a servant, when he says, this is what makes a man great enough to be in charge, when we listen to Jesus saying, don't rule like the Gentiles, whose great ones exercise authority over them, when Paul speaks of mutual submission, and Jesus points to the congregation to settle disputes in Matthew 18, as does Paul to the Corinthians, could it be that the law of Moses as delivered in the desert was designed for the same self-government Jesus ordained when he came, and indeed ordained in the garden itself before sin? It is not designed for kings. It can be used by kings. <clears throat> it's designed for servants to rule, each servant throughout the land judging what any judge or leader or elder says. Yeah, there are judges and leaders and elders out there. And they affirm or block. They do it and affirm it, or they reject it and oppose it based on God's word. Isn't this the whole burden of Ephesians 4, 11? Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. And it's God's jurisdiction, not the politician, whether his servant stands or falls. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.